This is episode number 326. How to cope with the fear of losing a loved one with Anne Grady. Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohit, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your false potential. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to make a few quick announcements. First one being an invitation to all of our listeners to our upcoming three-day experience on October 7th through October 9th in Austin, Texas, called Survive to Thrive, Face Your Fears. What this is, is a three-day event where you'll get a chance to hear stories from speakers from all over the world, as well as be a part of breakout sessions that are intended to help you identify your fears and ways to turn them into strengths. If you'd like to know more details regarding this particular experience, please visit our website at overcomingodds.today where you'll be able to find the latest details. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our show, and that is if our show has had any form of impact in your life, please consider supporting our cause by either making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. You know, I, I came across your work, I actually came across your book initially, and I was curious from the title of it and from a little bit of your background as far as how it relates to this concept of fear. And so I decided to reach out, and I think it was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, your assistant's name, Dina. Dina had responded and then she was like, yes, uh, she'll be more than happy to be a part of it. And so I wanted to have this conversation with you around the question of that I don't yet know the answer to, and that is what is your greatest fear at this point of your life? You know, I've thought so much about this question since I got that email from you. And uh, I, I mean, I've even talked to my husband about it. I, you know, I've, <laughs> I've like really given it thought and I, I've come up with three answers. So there's the basic fear, like I'm terrified of cockroaches. I don't know what it is. I'm terrified, but that's not like real fear. That's just, I don't like cockroaches. There's the overarching biggest fear that I have, like really keeps me up is losing someone very close to me that I love. Mm. That terrifies me. But the larger answer I think is that I, because of my son have lived in such a threat state for so long and been on high alert and, and in that fear state for so long that it takes a lot to, um, other than the, the things that are involved with my family and what's mm -hmm. going on there, it's kind of like, you know, your brain defaults to what you do and think about most often. It creates cognitive shortcuts and habit patterns, so it doesn't have to work as hard. And unfortunately, I have been exposed to so much trauma for the last 19 years with my son that I often operate out of a state of heightened cortisol and fear. And so it, it permeates really every area of my life. And so I've been working really hard to take control of my nervous system 
and learn how to regulate that response. But in in actuality, in life, if something were to happen to my husband, one of my kids, somebody really close to me, I'm terrified. Mm. What is the story with your son that for anyone that's not familiar with it? So when I was pregnant, Evan is now 19 years old. Um, but when I was pregnant, I knew something wasn't right. He would kick so hard. I would like drop to the ground and my doctor would joke around with me that he was going to be a soccer player. And then when he was born, the nurse came into the room and she was like, honey, I've been doing this 30 plus years. And in all that time, I have never met a baby this angry. It, it's always what a first time parent wants to hear. Like I had no idea what, what I was doing. He just cried constantly, constantly. And when he was 11 months old, I started him in therapy because I, I didn't know what was wrong. When he was 18 months old, his father, my ex-husband left. And so I'm a single mom now trying to navigate it. And he just kept escalating. And I, I went to doctor after doctor and everyone told me I was imagining it. And it was just me. But when Evan was three, he tried to kill me with a pair of scissors. Oh, wow. And by the time he was four, he was on his first antipsychotic. Um, at the age of seven, I got a call from his teacher that he had kicked a hole in the sheetrock, taken out an electrical cord, tried to strangle himself, threatened to kill two students, uh, dislocated a teacher's fingers. So I rushed from our home in Austin. I picked him up and drove to Dallas and checked him into the pediatric psych unit of Children's Medical Center, uh, where I spent the next two months living at the Ronald McDonald House. And up to that point, that was my greatest fear, that I would have to hospitalize him, um, that it was really that bad. And since then, it's been several hospitalizations, um, therapeutic boarding schools, uh, residential treatment facilities. He lives in a group home now um, in Idaho because Texas does not have any mental health services. And um, mm. so it really, in that process, remarried and my husband had a daughter. And so, you know, raising a family in that chaotic uh, environment is very scary and not knowing if you're physically safe. Um, and being able to keep your child physically safe. It's, it's a scary place to be. What is that like? I've always been curious about this topic as far as people having children or whoever it is that's close to them that's in that position who could not necessarily only harm you, but possibly take away your life as well as the life of those surrounding you. I, I can't even begin to imagine like what goes through your mind that does it change your relationship with that individual how do you how do you see your son so it's different for different people evan mm -hmm. um we learned later has a really diminished iq so he has an iq in the 60s so his is not premeditated and how can i hurt you and can i break in when you're sleeping and, and do something to you it was it's never that it's he is autistic, he's mentally ill, he has low IQ and developmental delays. So he has very little ability that prefrontal cortex that helps us regulate emotion doesn't work very well for him. So his is more of impulse control. So it's never like I'm intentionally going to kill you. It's you didn't give me ice cream. There's a pair of scissors on the table. I'm going to run and chase you. And so it was never like we thought he wanted to hurt us intentionally because he feels horrible remorse and guilt and goes into a tailspin every time he hurts himself or someone else. And as he's gotten older, the aggression is typically either directed toward himself or physical property, but it's terrifying. And unlike a lot of folks, like if you have a child who has another disability, like say Down syndrome, for example, mm -hmm. right, you can see it you know it's there. And typically folks who have Down syndrome are happy, right? Evan is like, um, 
kind of like a belligerent drunk person all the time, just angry and reactive and explosive. So it's, it's a hard place to be as a parent because you love your children more than anything in the world. I jump in, in front of a bus without thinking about it to save him, but it's hard to, and I had this conversation last night with him. It's, it's hard to like someone who mm-hmm. is emotionally abusive mm-hmm. and verbally abusive. And I, I don't let anyone in my life speak to me the way he speaks to me, mm-hmm. but, but he's my son and he can't regulate it. And he's been in therapy literally since he was 11 months old. And there are just some things his brain cannot do. And, mm-hmm. and so regulating those emotions it is one of them, but it still hurts. Not, not to go complete down a complete rabbit hole. And once again, if, if it's too personal, please feel free to let me know. But how close did it get? To killing me? Mm-hmm. Um, well, was, when it, it, was got... it more of a kind of like a scare or, or was there actual? I mean, he drew blood for sure, mm. but um, a three-year-old doesn't know where to put scissors, you know, right. like it's like sheer adrenaline. And so it was, you know, there were lots of times where I either accidentally fell down the stairs because I was trying to hold him or not have him kick me in the face or he would, you know, break a bone or, or something like that. So it's not like I was ever, um, it, there's a lot of times where I was more afraid he would hurt himself um, then hurt me. A lot of it's attention seeking. He doesn't know how else to get attention. So for example, he would cut himself when he was very little, but he doesn't know if he's going to hit an artery. He doesn't know if he's going to do something like that. So he, you know, it's not like I, I walked around in fear of my life. I walked around more in fear. Some of it was fear of failure that Mm -hmm. I failed my child that I can couldn't protect him, that I couldn't make it better. Some of it was literally physical fear. And that's a scary, awful place to be with your kids. But it's what drove me to speak about mental health. It's what drove me to be a mental health advocate and testify in front of the Texas legislature and donate a portion of all my book proceeds to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It it drove my journey and my purpose and my mission. And it's not something I'd wish on anybody. It's the most difficult taxing, painful, anxiety creating life that you can possibly imagine. And when it's your kid, you don't have a lot of choices. Now, does that sense of purpose personally satisfy you? Or do you do you find do you find it more as a commitment to help current future parents who are kind of going through similar circumstances? For me, it's bringing it to the forefront. So people start talking about it. For example, Mm -hmm. there were 13 mass shootings this weekend, right? So one could argue gun control, which I'm not going to get into, but it's a mental health issue, Mm -hmm. right? Like no one in their right mind who is mentally well goes into a building and shoots people. And in Texas, our jail system is the largest provider of mental health services. Mm -hmm. There have been multiple times where Evan's been in crisis. We were afraid for his life. We feared for our safety, but there were no beds available for him in any psychiatric hospital. It's the reason we had to drive three hours to Dallas and that we just lucked out that there was a bed available. Um, It's just a broken system. And so the way I have, when I started talking about Evan and and this is a really great interview, by the way, because nobody ever really digs in like this and I appreciate it. But when I started talking about what was going on with Evan, it wasn't for 
any other reason than purely selfish. I needed help and nobody could give me answers. And I'm in front of thousands of people all the time speaking. And I thought, well, surely somebody here mm-hmm. knows something that could help me. And so every talk, people come up to me, have you tried this doctor? Have you tried this therapy? Have, have you done this approach? And so it was always just information gathering of how I could help Evan. But um, in the process, people would say, thank you for sharing that. Like my, my son or daughter or cousin or nephew or sister or brother or parent struggles a lot. And they would always start it with my situation is nothing compared to yours, but, mm. and I would say, be careful. That's called comparative suffering. And it's an exercise in futility. You know, we all struggle at hundred percent, whatever you're going through is real to you. And so people would say, thank you for sharing that. Cause I never felt like I thought there was something wrong with me because Mm -hmm. it was, I never hear anybody talk about that. And then it became sort of a cathartic release because there's only so many times you can go to your therapist. (laughs) 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 But part of, and I wasn't a speaker on resilience. So my master's degree is in communication, organizational communication. So I was speaking with executive CEOs, doing talks, training sessions on leadership and emotional intelligence and communication and influence. And it wasn't until 2014, um, someone, I had a health scare in the middle, uh, right after one of Evan's hospitalizations, I had been diagnosed with a tumor in my salivary gland and it grew to the size of a small avocado. So shortly after we took Evan out of the psychiatric unit, I went in for what they said would be a routine surgery, but the tumor turned out to be the size of a small avocado and it had stretched my facial nerve around it. And so the right side of my face became completely paralyzed. And so I had a speech impediment. I drooled. I couldn't close my eye. So a couple days later, a speck of dust scratched my cornea. And the doctor said, well, before we can do radiation, we need to implant a gold weight into your upper eyelid. We have to stitch up your bottom eyelid to protect your eye. So it's the weekend before that eye surgery, April of 2014. And my mom is a flight attendant. And so she's like, why don't you and Jay, that's my husband. Why don't you guys go away for the weekend? So we, we thought, you know, since we've been lucky, we mm-hmm. should go to Vegas. What <laughs> <laughs> better place where to I go pers- than that, right? <laughs> where I proceeded to fall down a flight of stairs, breaking my foot in four places because I was mm-hmm. wearing an eye patch and had no depth perception. So I started radiation with a broken foot, a jacked up eye, <laughs> you know, half a face. Um, and it wasn't until after that somebody said, can you do a talk on resilience? And I, I said, I don't know anything about resilience. Like I felt broken and exhausted. And And so I dug into the research. I wanted to understand, is that something you're born with? Is it a genetic gift? Is it something that some of us have and some of us don't? And what I learned is that some of the things that I was doing as part of therapy and as part of my own journey were, some of those things were really helping me build that resilience muscle, but there were some things that I was doing that were undermining it. And so I'm, one of the things that I enjoy about my work is that I can take really complex concepts like neuroscience and pare it down into actionable things that people can do Mm -hmm. um, to, to make, to grow resilience, to make things better. And so I really started just digging in and I got so passionate about it and it helped me so much to put into practice the things I was researching that my passion really became to share that with other people, to let people know they're not alone, to reduce the stigma of mental illness. I was diagnosed with clinical depression when I was 19. So the irony of a motivational speaker with depression is not lost on me, but I use, you know, I use these practices in my life to navigate my own mental health 
and to deal with Evan and to, you know, get remarried and have a healthy marriage and have healthy relationships. So I, that's really where all of this work was born. So I've been, I've been curious about resilience for a number of years now. And part of it has to do with kind of my own upbringing. And once I started to get into the the weeds of it, I, I began to discover these tools and really what I thought, what I found as far as the tools go are just thought processes, the ways that I'm able to analyze information and uh, quickly learn something that I'm actually discovering more now than ever before is my ability to learn. I'm able to learn so much quicker, not necessarily better or worse. It's just the way that I'm able to process information is just completely different. And I've been curious when it comes to their resilience, a couple of things, a, Based on your research and discovery, does everyone have it? And B, why does it appear to be so, not to get comparative, but some people are more more resilient than others? And if so, what does that actually mean when it comes to the more component? Okay, so those are very good questions and, um, and we could talk for hours about this, but <laughs> go back to the first question. What were you is, is everyone resilient or not? Yes. So re- resilience is the, the textbook definition, right? Is mm-hmm. can I recover from change and adversity? Mm-hmm. Can I get back up after I've been knocked down? What the most reason, and yes, everybody can. And if you're still listening to this interview, you've survived all the horrible stuff that's happened to you and you're still standing. Like the average mm-hmm. person experiences five to six traumas in a life. In a lifetime, I'm an overachiever, uh, uh, me too. but right. So, but the average person goes through trauma, and by nature, we are resilient. I view resilience as one: it's more of a buffer zone. It's like, have I built the muscle that allows me to withstand adversity and not get buried by it, but get stronger from it? Mm-hmm. Am I able to? And you mentioned this in your journey. Am I able to extract meaning? <laughs> Am I able to extract the lesson? It's called post-traumatic growth. You can't see it while you're in the middle of it, right? But mm-hmm. when you're looking back with perspective, you go, okay, what did I, what do I take from this? How do I get smarter and stronger and more resilient as a result? Everybody gets knocked down. Do some people get back up more quickly than others? You know, there's debate in the research. There mm-hmm. are, but they've studied adverse childhood experiences and you know, in your formative years, when you're a young child, um, when I, I had my own trauma, it, it absolutely impacts your ba- brain's ability to process the world. So if you're in a constant state of fight or flight, or you are trained to always be on alert because you're afraid, that impacts the way your brain forms. Now, mm-hmm. the beautiful part about our brain is that we can change it. We can literally use our mind to change our brain. And it's called self, well, it's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity. Rick Hansen writes about this a lot and his work around resilience. And it's the idea that your experiences change your brain, not the other way around. So the more often you think and behave a certain way, the easier that becomes your default way of thinking and behaving. The more often anxiety-related pathways are ignited in your brain, the easier it is to stay there. Now, some people have a propensity like someone with depression or anxiety or, you know, a mood disorder of any kind, really. Some people have more of a propensity for their brain to behave one way or another. So when you said it's a mindset, the way my books divided is mindset, skill set, and reset. 
Mm-hmm. I spent years in cognitive therapy working on the mindset. And this is what are the stories that I'm telling myself about my life? Are they serving me? How do I look at it differently? What can I do to shift the way I'm responding to stress and, and adversity? But there's also skills, literal things that you can do regularly to build that buffer so Mm -hmm. that when stuff hits the fan, it doesn't mean you don't get knocked down, but you're able to keep it in perspective and get back up. Um, And then there's this whole other facet, which is why I wrote the book, because I have been a total cynic and skeptic of mindfulness. I just thought it was the dumbest thing in the world. Me and too. My, grand, my grandma used to say, honey, if enough people tell you you're tired, maybe you should lay down. Like if enough people give you the same feedback, you should probably take Get it. Some sleep. <laughs> she also, she also says, if you act like an ass, don't be surprised if people try to ride you. But that was it. No, but everyone told me to practice mindfulness. Every therapist, every doctor, everyone kept telling me. And I was like, this is so stupid. I'm not going to sit in a full Lotus and eat tofu and find my Zen. That's just not me. <laughs> But that's not what mindfulness is at all. And when Mm -hmm. I learned what it really is and how powerful it is and how you can not just shift your thoughts with your mind, but with your nervous system, Mm -hmm. that was super powerful for me because when you're emotional, it's really hard to go, is this story serving me? How can I think about this differently? When you're in the midst of crisis, it's really hard to use your prefrontal cortex and, and logically figure out how to navigate it. Mm -hmm. but you can rely on your nervous system to do it. And so training yourself to be able to access the calm part of your nervous system is kind of like a superpower. Mm -hmm. And it's fundamentally shifted the way I live and love and work and everything in between. I remember when I first read Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, I was just completely mind blown by the fact that you can actually quote unquote, think and grow rich from your thoughts alone. I mean, Mm -hmm. it, it was literally, I found gold. And it, was, it was such a new discovery. And I've realized over the years how profound much of his writing, as well as there's another book I, I read called uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl and of hundreds of others that literally, I think, hint towards a similar concept. And that's, you know, your thoughts are your thoughts. And I bet everyone experiences negative thoughts and positive thoughts. Just because you and I have done this work, it doesn't mean that we always experience positive thoughts. I'm probably experiencing negative thoughts right now as we're having this conversation. But I think that the difference- not about me. No, I, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the difference that I'm finding in all of this is which of those thoughts do I choose to vocalize and give energy to? Exactly. I, I'm a huge believer in the manifestation. I, Full disclosure, I have no idea how it works. I I don't really know what to do to make it work. I just do a variety of things that seem to increase the possibility of it happening. And I what's think one what, of your favorite things to do to manifest? Well, I'm curious because well, I believe as well. Well, one of those things that I tr- really try and focus on, and it's the first step for me, is which of the thoughts do I quote unquote make a reality? Mm-hmm. So whenever I'm in the moment of being angered or triggered or frustrated, I know that in most situations, that energy doesn't serve me moving forward. Like, yes, it might help me discover new things, but I'm also realizing that sometimes, if not most of the time, a lot of that frustration has nothing to do with what I'm actually frustrated about. There's a deeper problem. There's something rooted months, years ago to what actually caused that thing to kind of explode Mm-hmm. And so I realized in that moment that, A, it's important for me to take time for myself 
before I process it with anyone else and then engage in the dialogue with someone that I trust. <laughs> uh, manifestation wise, I'm in an interesting phase. So I, I've traveled for the past seven to eight months, eight months, maybe nine months. I spent some time in Europe, lived in Ghana, Peru, Ecuador, and I had a very interesting shift when it came to goals. I'm finding myself transitioning more towards intention-based thinking. So what would I like to experience today? How do I want to serve myself and serve others instead of setting a lot of the goals in place? And the reason why I'm leaning more towards that is I just had so many experiences throughout my life where I quote unquote, didn't achieve a goal and then started to perceive myself as failure or certain things didn't happen. Cause that's the other thing about life. And I think I'm reading an interesting book called the psychology of money. And there's a one line in particular, he said, and that's many people will oftentimes turn to someone else when looking for advice for money because they don't feel confident in their own ability. And the reason behind that is that they oftentimes assume that somebody knows more than they do. I think that's applicable pretty much across every area of life. You know? Absolutely. You know, one of the things you said, it's interesting. For years, I kept feeling like a failure because I wasn't always happy. Right? Yeah. We live in this society where happiness is a multi-billion dollar industry. I think it's like a 12 or oh, yes. billion dollar industry. And so we're kind of raised with that. Turn that frown upside down, fake it till you make it. You have so much to be grateful for. And while gratitude and positivity are important, your brain could care less if you're happy. Like your brain's mm -hmm. job is to keep you alive. So to do that, it's developed something called a negativity bias, which means our brain naturally magnifies negative experiences and minimizes yeah. positive ones. So if you're having a delicious meal in a restaurant and a fire alarm goes off, when you're laying in bed at night, thinking about your meal, it's, it's not the meal you're thinking of. You're thinking mm -hmm. of the fire alarm. It's the same, like getting a performance review until you've done nine things really well, but you have one opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. And that's the one our brain defaults to. So part of it was very liberating for me, knowing that not being happy is not a failure. It is a byproduct of the way we're wired, but you can develop it as a skill. It's not a constant state or a trait. It's a skill, but you know, there's a great book called Feeling Good by Dr. David Burns, and it's basically cognitive behavioral therapy, right? When I have this thought, like, I'll never succeed. Well, that's faulty reasoning. It's all or nothing thinking. It's very black or white. The problem is most of us try to go from a negative to a positive, right? I'll never yeah. succeed to, I can do everything I've ever wanted to do. And I'll never <laughs> fail again. And like, that's where a lot of it's these self-help things come from, right? Like, I am infinitely able to do everything I put my mind and that's fine. But like for someone like me who struggles with depression, I can't go from this sucks to this is awesome. Yeah. Like that just doesn't make the leap. And my brain actually debates itself. Like you don't believe that. And, and so it's like, I, it always pushes me farther, but your brain can go from negative to neutral or negative mm -hmm. to hopeful, right? Your brain can go from this sucks to it is what it is. Your brain can go from, I'm not strong enough to do this anymore to I'll figure it out. Your brain can go from I'm horrible at X to all I can do is all I can do. Mm -hmm. right? So for me, the mindset component was understanding that the other part of the mindset component, I don't know if you're familiar with the book called the upside of stress mm -mm. or Kelly McGonigal. She did some amazing research. I should be case. taking notes here on all these. No, it's a great books, book. Yeah. And she has a great Ted talk. It's called the upside of stress. And so her and Aaliyah Crum at Stanford did a bunch of research. And so they, 
One was about stress. So they take 30,000 people and they ask them two questions. One, what level of stress have you had in the last 12 months? And two, do you think stress is bad for you? Right. So they track those people throughout eight years and they use death records and mortality rates as a way to track progress. So they find that for the people who had high levels of stress in the previous 12 months, there was a 43% increased risk of dying prematurely, but it was only for the people who thought stress was bad for them. The people who viewed stress as nothing more than a physiological response, right? That increased heart rate, that's your brain needing more blood and oxygen. Tightness in your shoulders, tension in your stomach, that's your body putting on armor to deal with what's ahead. The people who had high levels of stress but didn't perceive it, good or bad, just is, mm -hmm. had a 0% increased risk of dying prematurely, the lowest rate of anyone in the study. Um, and they replicated this over and over. For example, they took room attendants, housekeepers, um, and they found a large group of these folks that don't exercise. And they said, for the purposes of this study, don't exercise. Just keep what, doing what you're doing. But half of the group got shown an infographic that said, basically, here's the calorie burn for all the things that you do when you're cleaning, when you're changing linens, when you're vacuuming, when you're dusting, here's how many calories you burn. Now, nobody changed what they were doing. Hmm. But the people who learned that what they were doing counted as exercise, lost weight, body mass index, lowered their blood pressure, increased pain tolerance, had better job satisfaction, even greater life satisfaction. Of course, long-term overproduction of adrenaline and cortisol is not healthy for any of us. It's how I ended up with a tumor in my face. But for acute stress, it really is the story you tell yourself about the stress. Like yes. I often feel stressed about my stress and I'm, my natural inclination as a type A is God, I'm so overwhelmed. I'm so stressed out. Well, it may be true, but that's not serving me. And it's yeah. triggering a whole set of neuro and biochemicals that are putting my body in a certain state to withstand it, not the ones that I need to think clearly and regulate. So it's just kind of understanding the brain was super helpful for me because it didn't make it a personal failure. It made it like a human, this is the way our body works. And if you learn that you can circumvent some of it. I'm a huge believer in the, in the power of one story or narrative. I think it was for maybe four or five years ago, when I started to do a lot of this work, there was just something that made sense for me that at the time, I, I was kind of all in on this concept that everything boils down to a story, story I'm telling myself internally, story I'm projecting to other people. Mm -hmm. And there was something I believed in, in it so deeply. I remember at first when I would share this concept with some people and some people would just turn away and they're like, okay, he's crazy. Like, what? how can this be possible? And then I started to, I, I would illustrate it through examples, whether it was being in the same room or wherever. And I said, and think about it. There was a story you created once upon a time where you took a series of, series of steps, you became one character, you shifted into another identity, and now you're here. All due to some sort of imagination. I want to do this. I want to be better at that. I want to learn this. I want to meet him or her or whoever the person is. And once I started to realize that and, and really put it into practice because obviously a lot a lot of what we're discussing right now in a sentence or two for me it's taken years to understand and practice and and the whole thing about habit and I'm curious to hear your perspective on this as well I read so many different studies on how long it takes to form a habit what do you do how do you do it Ultimately, what I've learned is that for me, it took way longer than 30 days 
Yeah, that's bogus. It, the 30, it, 60, 90 days, that, that's pop. I tried that. I, I populated the whole wall with 30 mm-hmm. stick note, sticky yes. notes, and I would take one off every day. And by the time it gets to 31, it's like the same exact thing. Yeah, for, kudos kind of go, for, for the going, effort. Yeah, going back to how you, you were describing it at the beginning of this conversation, how your brain is more likely to fall on default behavior right. rather than something that you're trying to force. And so I'm curious when it comes to change in general, what have you learned through your own experience as far as how many habits is enough to introduce within any given moment? So there's a book by S.J. Scott called Habit Stacking, Mm -hmm. and it's basically this concept, you know, human behavior change. In my first book, I said it happens one of three ways, rarely, slowly, or never. It's really hard to change behavior, which is why New Year's resolutions most often fail. Um, You're more likely to change long-term behavior if you attach a new habit to one you already have. So for example, the research is very clear. A gratitude practice is the number one predictor of well-being. It improves immune function, respiratory, heart health, lowers your risk of cancer, improves your mood, sleep, decision-making, reduces activity in the genes that cause inflammation. Like the list goes on and on and on. Why? Why? Mm -hmm. Because when you're practicing gratitude, you're offsetting your brain's negativity bias and you're directing it toward what's right instead of what's wrong. And it shifts the way your brain kind of processes the world. Interesting. So um, for me, when my face was paralyzed and my kid is just out of a psych hospital and everyone's like, focus on what you're grateful for. For me, that was like, it felt impossible. Mm -hmm. And everyone told me to journal. Well, journaling is very powerful, but it's not something that I enjoy. So I couldn't figure out how do I start this new habit? So I got gratitude jars and I put them all around my house. And every day at dinner, we talked about gratitude and it still didn't work. I'm like, okay, what do I do every day? Never fails. I always do this. I brush my teeth twice a day, every day, all the time. Mm-hmm. I would so say I, 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 I could gratitude. join you in that club, but I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes the morning gets missed. <laughs> how do you do that um but so i i brush my teeth right so i practice gratitude while i brush my teeth every day while i'm brushing my teeth i think of three things i'm grateful for and the smaller the better right so if i'm grateful my family's happy and healthy well your brain likes novelty so it stops paying attention to the same thing over and over and over again right so it might be, I'm grateful I have running water. I'm grateful I have toothpaste. I'm, I'm grateful I get to go see a friend today or that I have a break between keynotes and I can take a walk. Like the, the smaller, the better. But what's so fascinating about gratitude is that you don't even have to find something to be grateful for. Mm-hmm. Just looking in your environment for things to be grateful for increases dopamine and serotonin, which are in antidepressants decreases cortisol, the stress hormone by 23%. And it attunes your mind to start focusing on what's right instead of what's wrong. Now, is it a perfect science? Do I always focus on gratitude? No. And when somebody, when I'm really sad and down and someone's like, turn that frown upside down, I just want to throat punch them, right? We have, <laughs> we have, it's like, it's okay to not be okay. And yeah. I think people need to understand that you're not supposed to be happy all the time. There are things that you can do to offset your brain's, you know, propensity toward dwelling on what's wrong and the negative, but our brain wasn't designed to make us happy. It was designed that when a cheetah was running after us, we had Survive. enough yeah. adrenaline and energy to go. COVID has been a two year cheetah chase. Yeah. 
I mean, uncertainty and change to your brain are more of a threat than the cheetah and COVID. And there has been constant uncertainty and constant change. So everybody is in this hyper overproduction of cortisol and it's become the default network. It's become the default way. So in answer to your question, and I'm not an expert on habits, but I will mm -hmm. say the parts that's resonated with me is that one, anytime you want to cultivate a new habit, attach it to something you already do anchors uh, and make it one habit at a time. Like mm -hmm. if you're trying to change the way you eat and the way you exercise and the way you socialize and you'll be exhausted and nothing will change, mm -hmm. but you cannot break a habit unless you have one that replaces it. So if your default is whatever it may be, like, let's say finishing a long day and drinking a six pack of beer or eating a pint of Haagen-Dazs, if that's your default habit, the best way to change it is not just to stop eating ice cream and drinking beer, right? Mm -hmm. One breaking a habit or if you put friction between you and the thing you're trying to stop, it makes it easier, right? It don't depend on willpower. Willpower is not really a thing. So if mm -hmm. I'm like trying to eat healthier, but I buy cookies and I beat myself up because I can't resist them at 10 o'clock at night when I'm grazing my pantry, right? So stopping buying the cookies is what you have to do. Right. But it's also, I have to replace that with something else. So I can literally replace it with food like carrots, or every time I'm feeling, I have to figure out what is it that's driving me to want the cookies? Am I bored? Am I anxious? Yes. Am I, you know, trying to fix some uncomfortable feeling? Where is it coming from? And then find some other way to achieve that goal. Right. It's just that my habit, my brain goes, oh, cookies will make that better. <laughs> Yeah. So it's one habit at a time, small baby steps. I call it slight edge. It's like the difference between seconds in a horse race or a car race, the first place and second place winner it's microseconds, but the payout's huge. That's a slight edge. Instead of trying to shift every single habit, pick one small, subtle habit, change it, and then build on that success. But certainly don't beat yourself up if it's hard because it's very hard. Your brain has, your brain takes every habit, like it creates a neuropathway. If you imagine a neuropathway, like a trail that you've walked a million times, the grass eventually lays down. Mm -hmm. If you stop walking down that trail, the trail's still there. It might get covered with some leaves or some grass or debris, but the trail is still so deeply embedded because you've traveled it so many times. It's easy to hop back on it. That's what habits are. They're new neuropathway connections and it doesn't take a certain number of days. It, it takes consistency um, and, it, and the more often you do it, the easier that becomes. But when people are like, oh, if you exercise for a month, you'll just want to exercise. I tried it. That doesn't no. happen. <laughs> <laughs> the gym membership goes straight out the window yeah, on that like, 31st yeah, day. <laughs> exactly, right? So it, it's, it's, it's hard. The human brain is complicated. And I think sometimes we underestimate how entrenched some of our thought patterns and our stories and our behaviors are. This brings up a really interesting question. At least it's an interesting question for me. Why do you think or have you noticed a tendency where people don't appreciate the small steps, the small victories? Is that a cultural thing? Is that a universal as far as how we think about it? Because I've been trying to observe my own kind of behavior when it comes to this. And I'm, I'm in a better place now than I was before. And that is when I, where I was before. I was focused on the big result, the big goal, the big achievement. 
everything in between. I just breeze through it. Now I'm actually acknowledging the small steps. I'm acknowledging the email, the thank you card, the phone call, the random person I bumped into on the street. And yet he says something that all of a sudden shifts my whole perspective about life. And yet the person has no idea who I am. Right. And so I'm choosing to be grateful for those things. But I've been curious, why is it like that? Why do why is there a greater focus on the big grand things and less of a focus on the small steps in between, which in my opinion, are the things that create the big moments anyway? Such a good question. I'll tell you the science behind it, and then I'll Mm -hmm. give you a personal example where I just failed miserably. Um, Mm -hmm. So the science behind it is that when you have a negative experience, right, it goes immediately into your neural structure. So it protects you. When you have a positive experience, your brain doesn't need to hold on to it. So it flows through like water through a spaghetti strainer. So the, I'm going to answer it in two parts. So I'll go to mm-hmm. your question in just a second. But what ends up happening, the research shows that if you can step outside of that thank you note or the compliment or the sunshine outside or something small, right? If you can step outside of it and savor it, I call them delicious moments. They're the moments that we skip in our constant search for the big goal, for which for many people is happiness. Right? I just want to be happy. So in our search for that constant state, we miss all of these delicious, beautiful moments in between. And when you stop and savor it, process it, internalize it, feel it for 15 to 20 seconds, Mm. you change the neural structure and function of your brain. I think we're taught instant gratification. We want the big wins. It's a huge dopamine hit, right? We want the big payout. But that's life is not happily ever after life is a series of those moments, which is why mm. I named the book mind over moment. It's just a series of moments and we get to choose which ones we extract now a personal failure. So I think it was Tuesday success magazine posted a list of the top motivational speakers to know in 2022. And I was number one on the list. That's like a dream come true, right? Like that's something that is just people were congratulating me. I felt awesome, blah, 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 blah. Last night I turned to my husband and I go, do you think they really felt like I was the number one on the list? Or do you think it's because my name started with a G or like, how come I'm not on any other list? What if I I really wanted to be on a better list? Like I want to be on this list or I want to be known and recognized. How come Mel Robbins has this level of success and her picture's on that, but my name is number one and I don't have that love. It's natural. That's what we do, but you're on the money, which is if you can start paying attention to and savoring and appreciating those little bitty wins, that's what gives you the mental ability to get the big wins. And it builds on itself. It's momentum. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we do it other than I can only speculate that it's because we are a culture that wants what we want when we want it now. And instant gratification, instant gratification. And we take for granted the little wins. Where can people find out about the book? What do you have coming up in your life that people can be a part of? Oh, wow. Where can people well, find the success uh, article? Uh, it's magazine success article. magazine. So I guess it's success.com, but it's mm-hmm. one of their recent blog posts. So it's just motivational speakers to know the best motivational speakers to know. Um, my books are all on Amazon. Uh, I self-published so that I could keep a larger portion of the proceeds so that I can send them to NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So I didn't go through a house a publishing house because I wanted to retain most of the rights and the proceeds so that I could do something with them. So every single book I have is on Amazon. That's awesome. Um, I never and every single, I mean, three and a half. say again, I never thought of that approach or a, a, that as a, as a possible approach to contribute more. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I wish I could say that like, I'm a, a, that 
people are lining up at bookstores to buy my books, but I, I sell most of my books at events mm-hmm. when I'm speaking or people buy, like I'm speaking for T-Mobile, they buy 600 books, right? So that mm-hmm. that's how a lot of my books get sold. Um, but it was really important for me to find a way to give back from a mental health perspective. So that became something that I was really passionate about. But you can find any of those things on Amazon. Um, my website is just anngradygroup.com and my name has an E. Um, and then, and if you go to my website, I send out a Tuesday resilience reset newsletter. So if you sign up for it, I don't market anything. I don't sell anything, but it's just a tip tool or strategy every Tuesday to kind of help you protect your peace, um, build the habits that cultivate resilience and just give you something to look toward every week. But, you know, I, I someone just asked me this morning, are you, when's your new book coming out? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have it yet. I don't, I don't have plans for it yet someday maybe but right now um the three that i have in the journal is, is what i'm sticking with it's a process to put one together i'm putting the first one together right now and i'm finding that a it's not an easy task by any means b it's probably one of the harder ones that i had to do be, because the entire thing has required me to look in the mirror and to reflect and to acknowledge certain moments to, you know, shift my perspective. And I'm also finding within that because it's a, it's a memoir. So it's personal when it comes to my own experiences. One of the things that I've had to redefine a relationship with, and that's once it is published and once it's out there, it could change relationships. It could amplify them. It could make them completely vanish. I mean, just, you don't know what you don't know, but I mean, that's kind of the beauty of life, right? Yeah, you get to take, you get to roll the dice every day, and some days it you win, and and some days you don't, and you keep yeah. going, and yeah, I mean it. I love that you're writing a book. I love that it's a memoir. I can't wait to read it. So um, I definitely want to check it out. It sounds like you have done so much work that is in line with the things that I have researched and found, and I love it. And I I just genuinely appreciate the conversation and and the ability to connect with your listeners. I think what you're doing for the world is fantastic. I love your show and, uh, and I'm just grateful to have been a part of it. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to our future episodes where you can receive all of the latest details, also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next time.
Thank you. 